Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, September the 7th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. On Monday, Liz Truss was declared the winner of the contest for the leadership of the Conservative Party, and yesterday she became the UK's fourth Prime Minister in six years. She moves into 10 Downing Street with her country facing an economic storm and her party looking far from united in the wake of the removal of her predecessor Boris Johnson. Meanwhile, fractious international relationships over issues such as the Northern Ireland Protocol threaten to make her task even more difficult as she seeks to put herself in any sort of a position to win the next general election. She has, in short, given us much to discuss, and to do that I'm joined by our London editor Dennis Daunton and our political editor Pat Leahy. Hello to you both. Hello Hugh. Hi Hugh. Dennis, can you take us first through the events of the last 48 hours or so and and what you make of them? What we've seen over the last 48 hours was in some ways uh, exactly what we expected, which was that Liz Truss would win the leadership and would succeed Boris Johnson as Prime Minister. The slight twist at the beginning of all of this was that uh, she had been the runaway favourite in all the polls and she won a very comfortable victory, uh, defeating Rishi Sunak by 57% of the vote to 43%. But that was actually the lowest share of the vote that any leader had got since uh, they started doing the uh, Tory leadership elections this way. So she's emerged with the lowest share of the MPs vote in their section and the lowest share of the the membership vote as well. And so that's a pretty uh, weak basis on which to begin. And then what she did once she went into Downing Street was that she sacked everybody who had supported Rishi Sunak. So uh, he wasn't going to be in her cabinet anyway. And everybody except one, Michael Ellis, who had been paymaster general and he's now attorney general, all the rest of them gone from the cabinet, along with a number of uh, Boris Johnson loyalists. So there's been a really clean sweep at the top of the cabinet. And she's put in people who are close to her politically, but also close to her ideologically in many cases. And so it's been, she's very much put her own stamp on it. But that, you know, if you're a, a, a politician with uh, difficult things to do and in charge of a party that's difficult to manage, then you're creating more enemies than you had before you started. So what are we to make of all that? What are we to make of this slightly lower than anticipated margin of victory which she had? Was that, what did that tell us about the mood of the Tory party as a whole? And then, I suppose, on, on top of that, her decision not to try and reach out or offer olive branches or anything to the defeated side. Those two things together, what's the sort of state of play within her own party now going forward? I think... What you saw during the campaign was that she benefited from uh, this betrayal narrative about Boris Johnson, so that the uh, not so much the MPs, but the membership of the party had what they called seller's remorse, that they suddenly, after having booted Boris Johnson out, they thought, why are we doing this? Because 
partly because they looked at, uh, at what was available as his successor. And neither Rishi Sunak nor Liz Truss is a terribly charismatic politician. Neither of them have very obvious political gifts. Whereas Boris Johnson, although he destroyed himself in the end, he nonetheless had a peculiar and remarkable and unusual kind of political talent. And he was something of a celebrity. So, so I think there was some uh, buyer's or seller's remorse there. And so she benefited from that because the members, some of them thought that Rishi Sunak was responsible for Boris's downfall. But there was perhaps less enthusiasm for her than there was uh, antipathy on the part of some people against Rishi Sunak. And it also may have been that her campaign wasn't quite as good as we thought and Rishi Sunak's wasn't quite as bad as we thought. And that there appears to have been, for example, some late voting which uh, may have benefited uh, Rishi Sunak. So I think that, uh, you know, oddly, she didn't, her team, although they kind of had seemed to have managed their campaign quite well, they didn't manage expectations very well. And so when the opinion polls were showing her getting, you know, massive votes and, you know, much, much more than she ended up in the end, you know, Rishi Sunak's people saying, actually, we think the polls are not reflecting what we see on the ground. He's actually going to do very well. Well, that's what she should have been saying, maybe. But instead, it looked disappointing and it looked a bit flat. I think one of the reasons that she surrounded herself with loyalists is because she knows that there are lots of people who don't like her, who are out to get her anyway. And so there isn't really much point in putting people into place who, for example, have already gone on the Today programme saying that her uh, economic policies are going to destroy the economy and ruin the country. So when they go on to the Today programme next as a minister, they're going to be asked about that. So so I think that, you know, it's just sort of common sense in that sort of way. But I also think that uh, she's somebody who uh, is quite slow to trust people. And she does tend to have a kind of a coterie of people around her. A good example is Therese Coffey, who's just been appointed uh, health secretary and also deputy prime minister. Now, very few people would have made a bet on, on Therese Coffey being deputy prime minister at this stage. You know, she's been a perfectly adequate in some ways work and pension secretary but she hasn't really been a politician with a, with a huge profile but she's very very close to Liz Truss their friends their political allies and likewise some of the other people around her like Quasi Kwarteng the Chancellor of the Exchequer who goes back with her a long way and again not only are they friends but they're also they share a certain outlook and it's a kind of uh, it's it's a sort of uh, hardline free market approach Many of the people around her came from the uh, think tank, the Institute of European Affairs, or the, rather the Institute of Economic Affairs, I should say, uh, here in London. And it's one of a number of uh, extremely shadowy think tanks. Their, their funding is entirely secret, and they, uh, and they produce all these right-wing ideologues with sometimes fairly what looked like pretty daft ideas about how to run the economy. And you would kind of privatize everything, and you'd uh, leave education to the free market and all the rest. They come up with these sort of wild ideas. Many of her people are from there. And she has, throughout her career, flirted with a lot of these ideas. And so when she came into Downing Street, she first of all announced outside Downing Street that she was going to do exactly the opposite of this, in a way, by taking care of everybody's energy bills. But then at the same time, she did say that her other big priority was to grow the economy and to do that by cutting taxes. And that's a very controversial approach. Yeah, and there's a paradox at the heart of that, which I want to come back to you on in a minute. But but first, Pat, I'll go to you. I was quite struck this week by 
our coverage in in the Irish Times. Our our editorials tend to take a fairly you know modulated, moderate kind of a tone at times. But our our editorial about Liz Truss um, said, and I quote: "The disastrous tenure of Boris Johnson as British Prime Minister is to be followed by one that threatens to be even worse." Liz Truss will prolong the sense of chaos that has hung over her party and her country since the Brexit referendum in 2016. And our colleague uh, Fintan O'Toole, who, uh, you know, tends to put the boot in a bit more, um, says, and I quote, Truss is the embodied death wish of a faction that has lost the will to live as a real party of government. She's the my lovely horse of Father Ted, the springtime for Hitler of the producers, designed for failure. So uh, no punches pulled there. I'm sure Liz Truss is not too worried about what the Irish Times has to to say about her. But it does strike me that there there may be some possibility that expectations are very low, not just here in Ireland, but in large parts of the UK for her. And that that might be an advantage for her if she's scraping around looking for an advantage. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure how much of a blow it'll be to her premiership that the Irish Times has taken a dim view of her. But, um, you know, I suppose having the benefit of low expectations can sometimes be... Uh, an advantage for uh, a politician, maybe. But I suppose there's a reason why those expectations are low, and that's not just because of the, you know, objectively intense challenges that face her government or would face whoever was to lead uh, the next British government, but because of her, her her own record, her own conduct, what she has said. I mean, I've written about it on a, a number of occasions, Um about Dublin's attitude to Liz Truss, which was early on in the, uh, you know, when the, the when Boris Johnson resigned and the vacancy became uh, apparent for the job. I was talking to people in Dublin about who, you know, their preferred successor might be. And the view at that stage was very much anyone but Liz Truss. Well, you know, now they've, they've got Liz Truss, they just have to, to deal with it. And, you know, you'll have seen in recent days, uh, you know, an attempt to get away from overt hostility uh, towards Liz Truss, Taoiseach and Simon Covey saying that they want to, you know, a reset of relationships, etc, etc. And, uh, you know, people talk about a a September window for maybe a deal on on the protocol and and so on. Uh, I'm not sure how realistic any of the people who are saying that actually uh, think it is. I mean, there's not quite an, uh, an absence of hope that there could be an improvement in, in relations with Dublin and a deal on, uh, on the protocol, but there certainly isn't uh, an expectation that that's what's going to happen. So I think what's happening here at the moment as they look across the Irish Sea is that people are waiting to see what she does, what she says in her early, uh, her early statements, see what the, secretary, the new Secretary of State says uh, but there there certainly isn't much of an expectation in Dublin that we are entering a, a a new and better period of relations between the two governments but even apart from the Irish perspective Pat as a as a political analyst yourself of of many years standing what do you make of her as a politician in terms of what you know about her her political skills her her public profile all those sorts of things i think the one thing that we can say without fear of contradiction, is that she is an opportunist. And, uh, you know, she's she has switched parties, she's a Liberal Democrat as a student. That's that's all right. Many of us, when we are young and foolish, we do things that are young and, uh, and foolish. 
She was a, you know, she was a Tory, she was a Tory Remainer when it seemed, when the leadership of the party uh, was heavily behind Remain and when it seemed that Remain was the, the most likely outcome, she became a Brexiteer after Brexit and now approaches the subjects with, uh, with, with, with all the zeal uh, of the most fervent convert. Um, she, I think, is not a politician that is without skill in, you know, the politics of positioning herself and reading her fellow MPs. She did come from not a terribly strong position over the course of the Tory leadership to become the candidate of the uh, of the right, and as the candidate of the right, when she uh, when she reached the last two, then she was favoured, obviously to win her. She had an advantage in terms of going before the Tory grassroots. Dennis would be better qualified to comment on this than I would, but I struggle to see any consistent thread in her political thinking, such as it is beyond opportunism and self promotion. Although there is a kind of paradox there, isn't there, Dennis, in that she is an ideologue in some sense. She's very much part of that neo-Thatcherite wing of the Conservative Party, very much aligned with that Singapore on the Thames wing of the of post-Brexit British politics. But she's also changed her political spots on a number of occasions. Yeah, I think that's right. I think she's both an opportunist and an ideologue. And, uh, and so there is actually, although she's... Uh, as Pat says, uh, she's been very opportunistic in some of the choices that she's made. That nonetheless uh, has been a pretty clear ideology, uh, which is to do with uh, the the benefit of a small state, of low taxes, and of deregulation. And uh, and part of that, I think, it looks as if she's going to uh, to pursue. It was interesting during Prime Minister's questions on uh, Wednesday, which is today when we're talking, that uh, Keir Starmer went on uh, the whole package of how she's going to pay for the energy uh, bills. And essentially what she appears to be about to announce on Thursday is that she's going to do what he wanted to do, which is that the government freezes energy bills at their current level and uh, then uh, you know pays the extra cost. Now, he wanted to fund this from windfall tax on the the excess profits of the energy companies. And he said today they're going to earn, uh, according to some estimates, £170 billion in, extra, in excess profits over the next year. You're just leaving this on the table. And why are you doing this? And she said, well, uh, I don't believe we can tax our way out of all of this. And then it was the same thing when she talked about reversing Rishi Sunak's plan to put up corporation tax for the biggest earners. And again, Keir Stammer said, you're going to, you know, you're um, protecting the profits of, you know, you've decided that, you know, you're going to saddle the ordinary working taxpayer with the, this enormous bill and you're not going to, and, and you're not going to uh, do anything except give a tax cut to Amazon and to Shell. And so, uh, and yet she found herself, uh, you know, she quite clearly decided that this was uh, a line she was going to defend. And this is something that her government is going to defend because their economic strategy is that they believe that you pump money into the economy through tax cuts 
and that by uh, doing what they're doing on the energy prices, that that will actually bring inflation down because obviously the, uh, the, the energy bills for the consumer are going to be lower, so that won't necessarily fuel inflation, drive up wage demands, whatever. But then at the same time, people are going to have money to spend and that will, will boost economic growth. And that's the theory. Uh, at the same time, this comes at a cost of enormous borrowing at a time when uh, Britain is already you know, pretty overextended. And also what you've seen is this uh, you know, uh, huge depreciation in the value of the pound. Now, the euro fell in relation to the dollar as well, but the pound has fallen further. And uh, you know, Britain imports most of uh, what it consumes in terms of manufacturing goods, food, energy. And consequently, they're going to have to, you know, there are more people kind of selling pounds to uh, buy this stuff than are buying them. And that, again, puts pressure on uh, the, you know, on the currency that puts pressure on the Bank of England. And all of this points to pressure on the Bank of England, which has been warning that they will raise interest rates. They are going to ratchet these interest rates up. And the danger would be that uh, the you know, that simply this debt becomes unaffordable, that the gamble doesn't pay off, and that actually, uh, instead of this being a kind of well-thought-out strategy, what it is really is a gambler at the tables at four o'clock in the morning in Las Vegas and thinking there's no way out of this except everything, all of it on red. And here we go. Because reading more than I have done previously about her political career, which has been relatively successful, particularly in terms of, you know, rising to uh, rising to the cabinet fairly quickly after becoming elected to parliament and staying there uh, through some pretty turbulent times for the um, for the Conservative Party. There is a pattern there where she is, um, she has an idea and she sticks to that idea and she sticks to it all the way, even if it's not a very good idea, I suppose. Yeah, and she's got people around her now who are uh, going to go with it. And I think actually, although expectations have been low, we're at the stage of the political commentary where people are saying, don't underestimate Liz Truss. Uh, she, you know, she had to have something about her to get where she got today. And, you know, quasi quarting is something of a deep thinker. Now, you know, that's the moment we're at at the moment, you know, right now. I think some of the fundamentals point in a different direction, but you know, let's see what happens. But, uh, you know, but what we can say, though, with some certainty is that uh, by sacking all of these allies of Rishi Sunak, uh, and by disappointing various other people, she has created an awful lot of potential trouble on her own back benches. And everything is fine as when everything is going well. When she's popular, you're not going to hear a peep out of people. But when it comes to, uh, you know, if, for example, it turns out that she is not popular in the polls, that she doesn't get much of a bounce, or if, for example, when she's spending all this money on bailing everybody out and she's giving tax breaks to uh, gazillionaire companies, and then when the next Marcus Rashford comes along and wants the next, uh, you know, uh, bit of public spending to help kids who are needing something, it's going to be very hard to resist that. And yet, that's what governments tend to do, you know. So, so I think that, you know, there's the potential for all kinds of mini rebellions on the backbenches is enormous. And I just don't think there's a huge reservoir of goodwill. And I think the other uh, bit of peril for her is that if it had been the case where the MPs, most of them hadn't backed her, but that she got an overwhelming victory among the members and that 80% of them were behind, the MPs would be afraid to take her on. As it is, 
they can cope probably with whatever level of uh, unrest they'll find outside. And they just, they, they would feel emboldened, I think, by the meagerness of her, uh, of her victory to, to move against her in one way or another, just on individual things, just to make life difficult. Because the mathematical political realities for her and her MPs, Pat, is that, I mean, I said at the outset she had a couple of years to uh, before a general election. She did mention an election in 2025. If she gets all the way to 2025, she'd be doing pretty well, I think, with the various hurdles along the way. But the Conservatives still do retain a, a, a very comfortable majority. But you know, there are there are there are real problems for her here from getting getting to an election. Even if she has this theory of a case that she can pursue those policies, which which Dennis is talking about, it's very easy to see Conservative MPs staring extinction in the face in the run up to an election in twenty twenty four and panicking again. I suppose they've done it before. Yeah, particularly because you know the what she hasn't talked about while she's you know, talked about tax cuts uh, uh, during her election campaign. What she hasn't really talked about is the other side of the ledger of those tax cuts, which is, you know, a smaller state. Now, she hasn't talked about, uh, she hasn't talked about that in, in any detail, but we know what shrinking the state looks like because two Conservative Prime Ministers in the last 40 years have have done it. Margaret Thatcher did it and uh, David Cameron and George Osborne as Chancellor did it uh, after the financial crisis. And in both cases, the shrinking of the state was paid for by grinding austerity uh, throughout much of Britain. And that is precisely what is feared by those red wall MPs uh, that enabled, that switched from... Uh, Labour to the Tories in the last election and enabled uh, enabled Boris Johnson to win what is still a pretty hefty uh, pretty hefty majority. So uh, I just think, you know, I, I suspect that for the coming weeks and months, all attention in Downing Street and all the attention of the media and political discourse in the UK will be, as it most likely will be here, will be focused on the energy crisis and getting over the energy crisis. And that will be done um, by the application of large amounts of, uh, of of borrowed money. And that won't set the UK uh, apart from anywhere else in Europe. It's what comes after that, that I wonder what her strategy is going to be, because she will be saddled with a large deficit and a huge debt after that, with, if current indications are anything to go by, a rising cost of uh, of borrowing. And, you know, she will you know she will have to make those sums add up over the medium over the medium term and i don't see any other way of doing that uh, aside from uh, the sort of austerity cuts in public spending uh, that we've seen and for which there has always been an appetite for in quarters of the Tory party. But I don't think those quarters include the new MPs uh, that, that came over to the Tories the last time who were attracted and whose voters were attracted by things like Boris Johnson's levelling up uh, agenda, which translated, they thought, in many of their constituencies to, uh, to, to vastly increased uh, public spending. Well, you know, Liz Truss simply won't be able to do that. And, and, and that's why I wonder once you, there's all this focus at the moment on getting over the initial challenge and, and, and that's understandable. It's what comes after that, 
I think is where she might find herself in trouble. Stick with us. We're going to take a very quick break and we'll be back after this. Welcome back. I'm here with Dennis Daunton and, and Pat Leahy. We're discussing the new premiership of Liz Truss. Uh, Dennis, just listening to Pat there before the break and talking about the, the immediate challenges which Liz Truss faces and then the, the broader economic ones if and when one gets through this this energy crisis that we're facing into this winter. But I was listening to the Spectator magazine's podcast yesterday, and they were making the point that there are other items on the agenda of this government at the outset. And, you know, pretty significant among them is, as they see it, the fixing of the of the Northern Ireland Protocol. But there are other big projects. There's uh, the new Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, is very committed to getting the United Kingdom out of the European Convention on Human Rights. Really big, thorny possibly disputatious internationally questions, surely the instinct would be not to get into those kinds of quarrels when you've got this big problem immediately on your doorstep. That was the suggestion of the Spectator podcast, that there just would be too much on their plate to take them on. What do you think about that? Yeah, well, they certainly today uh, we heard that uh, Dominic Rabb had uh, had drafted this Bill of Rights legislation, which essentially was going to give the British Supreme Court uh, the authority to overrule the European Court of uh, Human Rights on some issues. And it was, it was supposed to be a kind of a workaround uh, the convention. And they've decided to scrap that. And it's not quite clear what they're going to do. I think, it, uh, you know, although Suella Braverman in, in the past has called for Britain to get out of the European Court of Human Rights, and there would be a, a decent enough chunk of uh, right-wingers on the back benches that would like to do that, I don't think they're going to go for that. And then on the Northern Ireland Protocol, it was interesting this morning, because before Prime Minister's questions, you had Northern Ireland questions with the uh, new Northern Ireland Secretary, Chris Heaton-Harris. Now, he is a former MEP. He's a, you know, he's a very, very hardline Brexiteer, and he's somebody who absolutely commands the faith, you know, the, the confidence of those hardline Brexiteers. And he was asked various questions about the approach to the protocol. And his line was pretty emollient in terms of saying, uh, our preference is for negotiation. I believed when I was talking to X, Y, and Z back in February that there was uh, a chance of a landing spot. I could see the landing spot back then, and I still think that's there. But if we can't do that, then we will, uh, we're going to proceed with the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill in any case. But, we're, but this is what we're hoping for. We're hoping for negotiations to find it. Now, they have, of course, been saying that for some time, but he said it a number of times. And then Conor Burns, who's still just about uh, Northern Ireland minister, when he was asked about the uh, Northern Ireland executive, he said to the DUP, you just get back and get to work putting the executive together. We'll sort out the protocol. You do your job, we'll do ours. But then when Liz Truss was up, she was also asked a couple of questions about the protocol. And she said two interesting, kind of possibly stray things. One was, she said, uh, when she was asked by Colin Eastwood about the restoration of the executive, and she said, yes, I want to see the executive back up. But before that can happen, we have to fix the protocol. Now, this is not actually the British government's approach. The British government's approach, its, its policy is the DUP should go back into government and then they'll fix the protocol. But she seemed to be, uh, whether she was misspeaking or misthinking or whether it's a change of policy, it's not clear. And then the other thing she said was, in, in the same sort of form of words as Chris Heaton-Harris, she said, our preferences for negotiation. But she said, but the negotiations will have to give us everything 
that we're looking for in the Northern Pride Protocol Bill. It'll have to deliver all that we're looking for. And otherwise, we carry on with the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill and we do whatever that does, which is unilaterally scrap parts of the protocol. And so it sounds like, on the one hand, they're pushing a more emollient tone and we're getting briefings that they're stepping back from the idea of triggering Article 16. And, uh, and the, you know, and as Pat was saying, the Taoiseach in Oxford and the British Irish Association at the weekend and various other places have been saying, there's an opportunity here with a new prime minister. Uh, you know, maybe we can start to do something. And maybe that's there. You never know when, uh, with negotiations like this, that sometimes people's public positions, uh, are, you know, don't necessarily reflect what's going on in the background. But I think once again, if you go back to the sort of structural fundamentals, who brought uh, Liz Trust to Downing Street? It was the right-wing Eurosceptics. They are her base within the Parliamentary Party. There's loads of people who don't like her. They like her. Why would she thwart the very people that are her most reliable allies? And so that, I think, is going to make it difficult for her to make a kind of compromise that is really the only sort of compromise that the European Union could countenance, which is essentially that you implement the protocol, even if that's a kind of, you know, it's implemented with easements and with exceptions. But nonetheless, there's no renegotiation of it. And I just don't think that that's, in the end, when it comes to the crunch, going to be enough for the European Research Group and their friends. And that, I think, is going to be a problem for her. So that's where I think I'd share Pat's pessimism about the prospects of an early deal. One thing that argues against that, though, is that the only thing that the British government has ever really concerned itself lately about where this is concerned, uh, and which was inclined to sway any arguments, is the potential economic damage of a trade, an escalating trade war with Europe. Now, if the economy becomes more and more fragile, and at a time when uh, the their balance of payments uh, you know, deficit is is growing anyway, making trade with Europe your biggest trading partner, even more difficult, is the kind of shock that you don't need. And so uh, in her first phone call, her, her second phone call of, the, of her premiership was with Joe Biden. And during that call, uh, they spoke about the Northern Ireland Protocol. The British readout had just said they mentioned the Good Friday Agreement, but the American readout said, and they spoke about the importance of a negotiated solution to the protocol. So she's going to meet Joe Biden at the United Nations General Assembly in New York in the second half of September. A week before that will be the deadlines for the end of these grace periods that uh, allow some things to go uh, easy in Northern Ireland with regard to the protocol. Uh, and so the question is, what does she do about that? One option is to trigger Article 16 and just unilaterally say they're going. Another is to ask the Europeans if they would please uh, you know, extend them. And then the Europe, you know, this would be sort of a kind of a, an open gambit to some kind of conversation. And so, it, you know, there are pressures on her in different directions. But it could be that the economic threat becomes so great. And it's also pretty clear if you talk to people in Brussels that they're not changing their line on this. There's no reason for them to. And so if that threat is real and it's there, then that could sway things. But I think emollients on the Irish side won't. But Pat, what, what Dennis is describing there is what I would describe as a series of rational calculations. And um, you don't necessarily need to agree with Fintan O'Toole all the time, but uh, his his critique is, which I quoted earlier, is that rational calculations are not at the basis of all this, that there is a kind of a 
a psychosis in a way, or something irrational going on in the whole process we've been experiencing since 2016. What do people in government circles in Dublin think about that? Do they, is there any prospect of a, you know, of a rational debate based on mutual self-interest here? Well, that's what they're hoping for, for sure, because and that has in the final analysis been the expectation in Dublin is that no state, when push comes to shove, especially the UK, which Irish government is always regarded as you know, a serious player, well-governed state, uh, and that the, the UK government won't act to harm itself in such an obvious way. And the difficulty, I, I, I suppose, I say you'd say two things about that. One is that they they've been right, and in, in, in that the UK hasn't, you know, pressed the nuclear button yet, despite threatening to do so on uh, on on many occasions. Uh, but that's, I suppose, no guarantee uh, that they will that that they won't do so in uh, in in the in the future. And. You would have to say, if you were to weigh up the likelihood of Boris Johnson pressing the nuclear button and Liz Truss pressing the nuclear button, then Truss is more likely to do so because she is, as Dennis points out, more beholden to that uh, uh, to that wing of the party which would uh, favour such uh, a, a course of action. Um, so, I, you know, I don't think in I don't think in Dublin there is an expectation of any breakthrough in the coming weeks. What there is some hope of is that for Liz Truss, given the scale of what faces her on her, on her in-tray, uh, that the protocol will become less important to her than other things. And then, you know, you, you might say how, you know, how great a priority has the uh, you know, have, have the concerns of Ulster Unionists ever been to a Conservative leader when their back's against the wall? And I think the view in Dublin and in Brussels is that Liz Truss's backs, just like the backs of many democratic governments in, in, in Europe, their backs will be uh, against the wall soon. And that at that point, she is unlikely to, to precipitate a trade war with the, uh, with, with the EU. That having been said, she does pursue if she does pursue that that course of action and and bear in mind that the entire animating spirit of brexit from the get go and to which liz trust now uh, proclaims her belated uh, her, her belated fealty uh, is that sovereignty is more important than anything including economic progress or economic well-being. Um, and the fear is in, 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 in Dublin is that if she does pursue that course of action to its logical conclusion, that the EU has simply run out of patience and will give her her trade war if that's what she appears to want, that the EU will not uh, take, you know, will, will not turn itself inside out or turn its rules inside out to achieve a solution uh, in in. Northern Ireland. And if that happens, then that the Irish government and the Republic are caught in the middle. Dennis, could we turn away a little bit from the kind of the high, high diplomacy and high politics we, we've been discussing to something a little bit more personal, because personality is, is important in politics. I've had a, a few people saying to me over the last week that they find this trust 
really awkward to watch and there's something about her her delivery it's sometimes robotic and monotone or her timing is appalling at times whenever you know she 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 you know, when she gives a stirring moment in her speech, people aren't stirred and then they have to be, you know, pressed to clap, pressed to applause, which I think they were when she gave Boris Johnson uh, some kudos on, on Monday. But that's a recurring, it's a recurring feature of her. She misspeaks sometimes. Um, maybe she misspoke today. She got words, she got her geography wrong with an important trip to Russia a year or two ago. Is any of that important? And I wonder, maybe, is there a slight undercurrent, as someone suggested, about misogyny about that, that women are held to a higher standard than male politicians? There might be, and uh, that's always worth uh, considering as as part of uh, of any kind of conversation like this. And I think certainly, I, I, mean, I think there's no question but that uh, that misogyny and sexism plays a role in the way people speak about women politicians in general and the way they, uh, and it's, it's one of the things they have to struggle with. But I do think that uh, some of the things you mentioned there are real problems. For example, when uh, Liz Truss went to Moscow and met uh, Sergei Lavrov a few days before the beginning of the Ukrainian war, and she went there as the British Foreign Secretary to speak to the Russian Foreign Minister about a very specific issue, which was to do with something that was threatening war in Europe. And when he referred to two provinces which were on the Russian side of the border with Ukraine, and I uh, asked her if, if these ought to, if she thought they should not be in Russia, and she said, no, they shouldn't. She and many people in Britain thought that this was a kind of a gotcha moment, as if it was entirely unreasonable to expect the Foreign Secretary of uh, one of the permanent members of the Security Council of the United Nations to go and have an important meeting about something like this and have any idea what they're talking about that this was just an unreasonable expectation. So I think that uh, actually some of this stuff, the fact that she uh, doesn't seem to be great on the detail, the fact that she sometimes doesn't appear to know what she's talking about, I think that does matter, actually. Uh, there's other stuff which is to do just with the kind of personal awkwardness, with the fact that I think she has an awkward manner. Uh, she's, uh, you know, she's much more engaging in private and people... I know who are friends of hers will say that she's, you know, the life and soul of the party and she's great fun. And, uh, you know, she's, uh, so, so she obviously does have those personal qualities. But in terms of political skills, uh, presentationally, I just don't think her best friend could say that she was all that good at it. You know, she just, uh, you know, and then I think, you know, if you look at, say, someone like Boris Johnson, who, uh, you know, is, had his, a kind of rather disorderly rhetorical style, it was nonetheless gripping when it was good. Uh, he, again, was sort of slapdash and lazy with the way he used it. But nonetheless, he did know how to, uh, to, to command the attention of a room. And this is not something which uh, she's very good at. But then on the other hand, what we have seen is that she works hard sometimes, uh, you know, that on things like that. So she performed badly in the first campaign debates, then she got better. She was never going to be quick on her feet uh, in Parliament, but she obviously worked hard before Prime Minister's questions on Wednesday, and it worked for her. She actually had a good performance. She adopted the right tone, which was quite a, a good-natured tone, and she answered questions in a relatively sort of straightforward manner, and when she had her prepared lines to deliver, she delivered them pretty well. So she can, uh, you know, uh, she's not a natural political performer, I think, but she can get better, and people generally do get better after a while being in office like that. Do you agree with that, Pat? I didn't see um, 
PMQs today, so I won't comment on that. I will echo something that uh, that Dennis says, uh, you know, about her her lack of a command of detail. I've um, written in recent weeks about this encounter, which seems to have more or less turned into a stand-up row that she had with Simon Coveney uh, at a Council of Europe meeting in Turin, which was in April or May, uh, May of this year, um, uh, I, I think. And, you know, accounts of this meeting continue to circulate uh, around around government. That's actually informed quite a lot of the, the, the Irish government's uh, attitudes uh, towards her. And, uh, you know, somebody uh, who was who has been briefed on the on what occurred between them was talking to me about it, and this person said that uh, you know, and she even raised the you know threat to the common travel area between uh, Ireland and uh, and uh, and the UK as something that could be endangered by the Irish government's uh, attitude towards the the protocol. And when I query this is. This person said, well, yeah, but it, it, it soon became clear that she didn't really know what it was. And, uh, you know, so I think, you know, that those, those qualities of actually, as Dennis says, not really know what she's talking about uh, sometimes. There's, I suspect there's many more examples um, of that. Um, on the other hand, you know, she's demonstrated you know, enough political ability to rise to the highest political office uh, in, in the land. And that demonstrates, I suppose that is prima facie evidence of some degree of, of political skill and, uh, and ability. And I was reading one of the British reports um, in which the Labour leader, Keir Starmer, has kind of warned his front bench not to underestimate her that, you know, she has won this gig, she will dominate the news for several weeks, she will play the Tory press like a, a, a musical instrument. But you very often find that, you know, the skills needed to get people to the highest political offices or to win people political offices are not the same ones that are required to govern uh, effectively, much less in uh, in a time of crisis, and she's been very good at navigating. You know, since July, in navigating two sets of people. One of them has been the uh, you know Tory MPs. Okay, she you know she didn't she didn't win that, but she came second. And the second group of people has been Tory activists, and you know she has you know demonstrated obviously great deal of success. Uh, in 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 talking to those people, but now she has to talk to the entire country, and uh, and that that's that's a very different role. And you know sometimes the skills that you need to get you there do translate, as you know they did with Blair, but they didn't with Brown, and uh, and, and and they didn't with Theresa May either, really, and they didn't with Boris Johnson either. And you know I, I wouldn't be optimistic that they will do with with Liz Truss. A last question uh, to you, Dennis. Uh, there's been some comment and a certain amount of debate about the fact that uh, for the first time in British history, all of what are described as the great offices of state are held by people who aren't white men. Uh, and um, Liz Truss herself is the third UK 
woman prime minister, all of them members of the Conservative Party. And it is, you know, it is quite striking when you look at you know, um, Suella Braverman and James Cleverly and Quasi Quartang, and you look at the fact that, you know, significant other big beasts in the Tory party who, have, who are just departing the front benches like, like Rishi Sunak and Sajid Javid. The Conservative Party is the most multicultural governing party that I can think of in any multicultural Western country. And I wonder what we should make of that, given that we've talked so much in recent years about the UK entering a period of introspection and little Englanderism and that. How, how should we read that? I think one of the facts about Britain is that it's way ahead of every other European country when it comes to representation of diversity. And that's not just true in politics, it's true in broadcasting, in the media more generally. That, you know, there's plenty of way to go. But nonetheless, it's just incomparable. There's no other country I can think of, not France, not Germany, not Spain, nowhere, where you will see that you know, just where representation is so, uh, is, is so diverse. And that that's, you know, and, and so that, that's one thing it reflects. It's also worth noting, though, that, uh, some of these people, if you examine it, uh, in terms of social class and background, rather than in terms of ethnic origin, then it's a different story. Quasi Kwarteng went to Eton, for example. Many of the uh, conservatives, you know, Rishi Sunak went to Winchester, uh, and you know, so they, so these people are not necessarily, um, you know, uh, terribly underprivileged people, uh, you know, despite the fact that they come from ethnic minorities. And so I think it's a kind of a, it's it's a complicated picture, but I think it's also true that actually, you know, uh, partly starting with Mrs. Thatcher. And then going on with uh, David Cameron, that the Conservatives, they sort of managed to hold these two things at the same time. On the one hand, they held the right together with uh, by having all of the kinds of people who would perhaps make uh, slightly racist or off-color jokes in the golf club bar. And, uh, you know, and they'd have plenty of, you know, homophobia and sexism and everything else. But the generally speaking, they also were able to be a reasonably big tent. But there's always a bit of a tension between it. So at the moment, for example, one of the big uh, issues during the campaign was this anti-LGBT uh, witch hunt that's going on, uh, the moral panic that's going on in Britain against trans people and, and against trans rights. Now, that's got a grip of the Conservative Party. But at the same time, there's huge numbers of LGBT people on the Conservative benches. And in fact, the first uh, openly trans MP is a Conservative member of Parliament. So, uh, you know, so you have this complexity in it. But I think really it reflects more on the success of British society uh, in terms of some of these things than it does just on the Conservative Party. But more prominently in the Conservatives than in Labour, which must, I think, perhaps be you know a little problematic for, for Labour. Well, having said that, I mean, if you look, say, you know, it is true that uh, you've had two women leaders of the Conservative Party, three rather, three women leaders of the Conservative Party, but you have much more Labour women MPs than you have Conservatives and, you know, always have had. So, uh, you know, so it's not, it's not, and again, likewise, in terms of uh, ethnic diversity, the uh, Labour benches are more diverse. So uh, as it turns out, they haven't become leader. But that doesn't mean they, you know, that doesn't mean they won't. The deputy leader of the Labour Party is a woman. And, yeah, who knows uh, what happens next. 
Indeed. A good note to leave it on, and we will leave it there. Thanks very much to, to Dennis and to Pat for joining us. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon, our engineer, JJ Vernon. We're going to be back very soon indeed in your feed, but until then, thanks very much for listening.